Welcome to Change Our Talk, where we discuss political issues with the aim of bringing some sanity back into our conversations. If you are like many Americans and are fed up with the state of the political landscape, the us versus them talking points, and the lack of substance from our elected officials, then this podcast may be for you. You can see full notes and more about what we do and what we hope to accomplish at changeourtalk.com. I am your host, Dylan Renzel. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four. Today, we're going to be talking about the student debt debate and whether or not there should be some form of student debt forgiveness or not, and kind of all the ins and outs that go into this conversation. Now, generally speaking, it seems like most people base their position on the student debt debate off of their own personal experience. Now, I think personal experience is one of the most influential factors in shaping a person's perspective and worldview, just generally speaking, and therefore informs us on the opinions we have on particular issues. So what I mean by that is if you are a person with a lot of student debt, you are more likely to take the position of being for debt cancellation. If you're a person without student debt, you are more likely to be against it. But I must provide a word of caution about making policy positions based only off how it benefits or doesn't benefit you personally. We need to take a deeper breakdown of important issues like this one and find a logical compass that guides us to what is best practice rather than just a map that only leads to our own self-interest. So if you listen to episode one, I talked about how the function of our government is influenced by our conversations in society. And if our conversations are dysfunctional, then our government is more likely to be dysfunctional. The debate around student debt cancellation seems to be plagued by a problem that many of our other national conversations have, and that major problem is simplicity. We seem to crave simplicity so much that we are allowing complex issues to be watered down to the point of uselessness. That might not seem like a problem to some people if we oversimplify, but if we oversimplify, we become less accurate. And if we become less accurate, we become less likely to solve the problems to our fullest ability. Now, it's my view that this has become such a problem that many in our society mistake simplicity for truth and complexity for deception. So in other words, the more simple something is, the more truthful it seems. But I think that this is a misguided notion. So to put it another way, if two politicians are discussing a topic and one of them gives a well-thought-out, complex answer, it might seem as though they're just being a fast-talking politician because the person that's listening might not understand everything the politician has said. So that makes them feel like they're being deceived in some way. On the other hand, you have another politician that gives a simple answer that's easily understood, even if it's less accurate it seems like that person is being more truthful. I think this is a dangerous road to continue going down, and I think our politics have been trending, our political conversations have been trending this way for quite some time, that if we hope to have a society that functions at a higher level, we need to fix this. But we do live in a political climate where it seems like hyper-skepticism and cynicism have become the most fashionable, and it makes people think that being cynical makes them wise. But I disagree with that. In fact, I think it's the opposite. I think that if we get to a place where people are so cynical that the well of trust has run completely dry and that people just end up giving up on there being solutions, then hope is going to become a relic of the past. 
and things like student debt are going to be the least of our problems. But let's go ahead and escape from that kind of philosophical rabbit hole and get to the issue at hand, which is the student debt debate. Now, I'd like to focus on three categories of perspectives that I've heard. The first are from people who believe that debt should just be canceled outright. The second group of people would be those who already went to college and paid back their debt and do not believe that the debt should be forgiven at any level. And then the third would be people who did not take on any student debt and didn't go to college and also believe that the debt should not be forgiven. So I'm going to try to fairly break down each of these perspectives and their pros and cons and their possible contribution to a solution. Now the divisions on this topic are generational, they're occupational, and they're political. So depending on how old you are, what your job is, and what political persuasion you hold, that's going to have a pretty big impact on your viewpoint on this. Now, in the past, I've talked about the differing views on what the role of government are and what the role of the individual are, and the political divides on this issue are definitely inspired by people's honest disagreements of those fundamental questions. But we are constantly trying to balance the benefits of individuals to the benefits of society overall. But I think it's a worthy question for someone without a college degree to ask, you know, why they as a taxpayer should be helping to pay for the educational debt already taken by someone else. Or another understandable question would be from college graduates who have already paid back their debt, or those that come from families that didn't require loans, why they should help pay back someone else's educational debt. But let's go ahead and start with the people that believe that debt should just be canceled across the board. These are typically younger people in their 20s and 30s that have been saddled with loads of debt from college. But interestingly, the politicians that are pushing for these large amounts of debt forgiveness are quite old. The two biggest supporters that I have seen for loan cancellation are Elizabeth Warren, who's 72 years old and is a U.S. senator from Massachusetts, and also Bernie Sanders, who's an 80-year-old senator from Vermont. Both Warren and Sanders have been calling on President Biden to cancel up to $50,000 of debt per borrower. Now, President Biden has been pretty apprehensive to go this route for many reasons, but the far left of the Democratic Party have not been happy with his lack of action as they see it on this issue, even though the president has instructed his Department of Education to cancel some debt for, let's say, borrowers who are victims of predatory lending or some other factors to try to alleviate some of the debt from some borrowers. It's also been floated that he might be willing to cancel up to $10,000 per borrower, which is much less ambitious than the Sanders and Warren plan, but such a course of action will meet just as much pushback from some moderate Democrats and also, of course, from Republicans. Regardless of what the president does, the left is probably going to be mad that it's not enough and the right will be mad because it's too much. But if we're going to try to understand the current situation, we need to look at some statistics. And the first statistic is that the average debt per borrower in the United States is $37,584. And 43 million Americans have student debt, which is 13% of the country. So you have 13% of the country that owe, on average, $37,584 in student debt. And if you add up all of the outstanding student debt, it's going to come out to $1.6 trillion. 92% of that $1.6 trillion is due to federal lenders, with 8% of it due to private lenders. And then the average student loan payment per month is around $450. 
Now I'm pointing out the fact that it's due to federal lenders because it speaks to the overall debate about whether the president and the Department of Education has the authority to just cancel any amount of student debt, whether it's the $50,000 that Sanders and Warren are proposing or the $10,000 that he might seem willing to cancel or any amount. And I'm not qualified to make that determination about whether he has the authority to do that or not, but I do know that lawyers in that realm disagree on the width or breadth of the authority the president has on this issue. At any rate, the positives and the benefits of the Warren and Sanders proposal would obviously be concentrated on those 43 million Americans who have student debt, 37 million of which have debt under $50,000. And I'm sympathetic to those that want this proposal to come to fruition because Many Americans that have student debt just feel so squeezed by the realities of paying back all of the substantial debt that they accrued in order to get an education to do jobs that require the education that they got. This debt is clearly hurting the younger generation's ability to buy a home, to start a family, to save for retirement, and so many other things. But even with those realities that do need to be addressed, I would advise against just blanket loan forgiveness that some desire and also advise against the Sanders-Warren proposal of $50,000 in loan forgiveness. To me, our elected leaders shouldn't be considering broad debt cancellation until they deal with the real problem. And the real problem is the cost of post-secondary education. So to explain my thinking on this, let me give you an analogy to try to illustrate this point. If you walked into a room and saw someone bleeding out onto the floor, you wouldn't clean up the blood first. You would try to stop the bleeding. So to stop the bleeding, we need to reduce the rate that massive student debt is being accumulated, which is being impacted by the cost of college and other post-secondary costs. Then, if we alleviate that, we can start to evaluate the merits of student loan forgiveness. But for argument's sake, let's say hypothetically, Biden just went and canceled $50,000 in student debt per borrower tomorrow, which again, there's a question of whether he has the legal authority to do that. To some people, it would do some arguably unethical things. Number one, it would shift the cost of loans that people signed up for onto people that did not. Number two, it would create a problem for the people who just recently paid off their loans on their own, and it would also set a precedent to future student borrowers that they can borrow and the federal government will eventually just cancel their loans too. And lastly, this kind of leads back to my analogy, we would just end up with the same problem in a few years because we didn't actually fix the root cause of the problem. We cleaned up the blood, but we didn't stop the bleeding. So I've heard individuals who think that their student debt should be forgiven and the arguments that I hear are basically just that they deserve it or it seems like they feel like they're entitled to it. And I just don't think that that's a good argument. I think you can make a better argument around why student debt should be forgiven besides the fact that you just think you deserve it. You know, and I do want to be clear, I have student debt as well, but you have to acknowledge that just canceling everyone's student debt even though it benefits you personally, could have some unintended consequences that we should want people to examine and criticize to make sure that we're not creating more problems by trying to solve one. However, I do think that people with student debt do deserve some relief and some avenues to make their payments more manageable. And I know that the simplicity and the expediency of just no more student debt is appealing, 
but I think solving your individual debt problem will probably take a little bit more complexity and knowledge along the way. So for instance, there are currently several things already in place to help student borrowers. And one of those things is the income-based repayment plans that cap your payment at 10 to 20% of your discretionary spending and also forgives the outstanding balance at the end of 20 years. So I think this type of program is a good compromise because it maintains an element of individual responsibility, but also provides an avenue to escape this seemingly insurmountable debt. So what is baffling to me about this program though is that only 19% of people with student debt are utilizing the income-based repayment plan, while 9% are behind on their payments and 5.7% of them are delinquent. Another thing that borrowers can do for instance, is write off their student loan interest on their income taxes. And I know these things might seem like, quote, small potatoes to some of you who just want blanket forgiveness, but this is an avenue for relief. However, I do want to be clear, I'm not saying that we should stop the relief here or that the current laws and rules that are in place are enough. I think we can find other ways to help. And there are definitely other policy proposals I would advocate for, but I'm going to talk a little bit more about those later. So now that I've criticized the perspective of blanket student loan forgiveness, I would like to talk about the perspective of those who have paid back their debt. And many of those who fit into that category say things like, I paid back my loans, or I worked my way through college and paid my own tuition. With these phrases and these utterances, we find the generational divide that this conversation brings forward because the experience is so profoundly different depending on when someone went to college. So we need to consider some numbers to illustrate this extreme difference in the experience depending on when someone went to college. So some relevant numbers I think we need to make sure we look at are the cost of tuition, the rent cost, and what the minimum wage is. Looking at those over the years, what you will find is that tuition costs went up even after you adjust for inflation. Rent costs went up adjusted for inflation, and minimum wage actually went down adjusted for inflation. I've made a whole table illustrating these things. There is a link in the description. You can click that link. It will bring up the table so you can look at each component and each time frame. But for the sake of just the auditory experience here, I'm going to focus in on comparing somebody who went to college from 1977 to 1981 to someone he went to college from 2016 to 2020. So the person that was going to college in the late 70s, early 80s, over four years would have paid $9,500 in tuition over four years. And that's already adjusted for inflation. And we compare that with the student that went from 2016 to 2020, it would have cost them 38320 So we're looking at almost $30,000 more intuition cost for the more recent person who is now in their early 20s versus the person that is now in their early 60s. And if we look at rent, rent costs adjusted for inflation, $810 a month in the late 70s versus $1,100 a month in the time frame between 2016 and 2020. And then if we look at minimum wage, minimum wage adjusted for inflation in that time in the earlier time frame is $10.04 an hour while now it's $7.75. So to try to simplify all of this, 
if we take a scenario in which a college student goes to school for four years, they live with a roommate, they split the rent in half, 50-50, down the middle, and they also work 20 hours a week for the whole year, you would get a scenario where the student that went to school between 1977 and 1981 would actually make almost $10,000 more at their job than what it cost them to pay for rent and tuition. So they would be ahead almost $10,000. The calculation I made was $9,613 ahead after their four years. You look at somebody who went to school between 2016 and 2020, do the same scenario, four years of college, split rent with a roommate, work 20 hours a week at minimum wage, that student would have been behind, or other words, in debt, $35,000. Their costs were $35,000 more than the money they were able to make when you add rent and tuition together. Same scenario. The only difference is when someone went to college. And again, these numbers are already adjusted for inflation, so you can't say, you know, well, everything's more expensive now. That's already been taken into account to these numbers. So the point in showing these numbers is because the personal experience is, as I said before, most influential in shaping our perspective. So the current 62-year-old who is heading into retirement they think back to the fact that they made enough money at their part-time job to pay for their tuition. And it's hard for some of those folks to understand why students can't just do that today. It seems like many in the older generation kind of just chalk it up to the younger generation just being lazy and wanting a handout when the reality just isn't that. A 2020 college graduate would have paid twice as much in tuition as their parents, 4.5 times as much as their grandparents their rent would have been 1.25 times more than their parents and twice as much as their grandparents. And this is adjusted for inflation. This is the reality that students are dealing with now that the older generations did not have to deal with or at least dealt with to a smaller degree. This is a different situation and I think the older generations have to acknowledge it and be part of the solution. The reason I think it's important for the older generation to acknowledge the difficulties that the younger generation has had is because it doesn't seem like they're doing that right now and it almost seems like the younger generation is being blamed for the student debt crisis as if they've just been irresponsible with their borrowing. And yes, there have been individuals that have been irresponsible with their borrowing, but the point in the scenario that I put forward is that you can have Two students that do the exact same thing, go to college for four years, split their rent, and work a minimum wage job for 20 hours a week every week of the year, and come out with two completely different outcomes. So it's not about the individual choice, it's about the environmental circumstances or the societal circumstances that a particular student finds themselves depending on the time period that they went to college. So the older generation has to start acknowledging this so that we can have more voices in looking for a possible solution to alleviate this problem because this is a national problem. With the older generation seemingly not acknowledging this, it's almost like they're washing their hands of it and saying, well, it's not my problem. It's, you know, I already paid back all of my loans and I was responsible. You've just been irresponsible. And it's completely an ignorant perspective and it misdiagnoses the problem because it doesn't look at the realities of what people are dealing with in today's society. 
So if you are part of the older generation, I would just ask that you have a little bit more empathy for the younger generation because their experience has in fact been different. And I think that we could all have a little bit more empathy and compassion across the board for people who are experiencing different problems, even if they're not directly impacting us. There should be at least a degree of collective responsibility that we share. And it reminds me of a line from Obama's Democratic National Convention speech in 2004. And you might not like Obama, but his 2004 DNC speech was very good and had a lot of good substance in it. And one of the things he said was, if there's a boy down the street that can't read, that matters even if it's not my child. Or if there's an elderly woman who can't afford her prescription drugs, that matters to me even if it's not my grandmother. The idea that we are our brother's keeper and that the fact of the matter is, even if something like the student debt crisis doesn't affect you directly, there is certainly an indirect effect on you. Because if we start de-incentivizing people from taking on student debt, from taking on the investment and to become teachers or to become doctors or to become lawyers, we're going to see long-term negative effects for other people who are looking for services from teachers, from doctors, from nurses, from lawyers, or a host of other occupations. These people are providing services to other people, so there is always going to be an indirect impact that this can have on us in the future. So this fits nicely with the next perspective, which are people who didn't get college degrees, they didn't go to college, they didn't take out loans, so they don't have student debt. This kind of goes back to the same type of thing that, well, it's not my problem because I didn't even go to college. I'm not the one that took out the loan. However, I think that we need to be careful with having that position across the board of this idea that if I'm not directly benefiting from something, then I don't have a responsibility to it. So let me give you a couple of examples of things in society that would fit this idea that we, I think a lot of people would agree wouldn't be a good thing. So for instance, let's say somebody said they no longer want to pay, pay school taxes because they don't have any children in the school system and they've never had any children in the school system. So why should they be paying property taxes or school taxes that go toward the local schools? Or if somebody at the end of their life goes, you know what, I've never used the fire department. They've never put out a fire at my house. They've never been, I've never created a car accident that they've had to come to. So I would like my tax dollars back for all of the money that went to the fire department or anything like that. So there are certain things in society that we make a collective effort to fund that we might not all have the same amount of benefit from. But the overall cumulative benefit, obviously, of there being fire departments or there being schools that are educating kids to become young adults and be productive members of society, most people would agree that those things are certainly worthy causes to have some sort of collective investment in. Now, I'm not saying that the student debt cancellation fits perfectly into categories like the fire department or K-12 education, but I am saying that simply having the position that you shouldn't have any responsibility for it because you're not directly benefiting from it, I don't think actually carries a whole lot of weight. Because as I said before, we're looking at people who go to college so that they can do jobs that require a college degree. Whether we're talking about doctors, teachers, people who major in business, people who are nurses, you name it, name your occupation. 
we have to make sure that we are making it feasible for people to go in those career paths or in the long term we're going to see vast negative consequences of it in fact i think we're already seeing it we have massive shortages across a lot of different sectors of the economy and it has to do with the being a lack of people who are actually trained in those areas and some of the de-incentive if you will that is driving people to not be trained is the cost of being trained. I think we need to have a conversation about how to incentivize people to go into certain occupations. So this is where I get to my actual position and proposal here. And one of the things I think we should do, and this is aimed more at college cost than it is the student debt problem, but I think like I said before, college cost is the root problem, so I think we need to attack that first. And one of the things that I would propose is looking at what occupations in society provide these vast services, whether you're talking about teachers or welders or electricians, plumbers, there's a shortage in a lot of different areas in our economy. And to incentivize people to go into those sectors, I think it would be wise to take tax dollars and help pay for the education of people that are going into particular occupations. So one of the things that has always been curious to me, and you know, I, I talk about this and, and people kind of tilt their head and I don't think a lot of people have thought about it like this, but if you think about how college works, if I go to an undergraduate college for four years to get a bachelor's degree, I go to a four-year university and get my education degree, my earning potential coming out of that college you know, let's say starting salary was $40,000 a year. And then you have people going into marketing that their average starting salary coming out of the same university, the same amount of time put in their, you know, I don't know what the number is, but let's say it's $70,000 starting salary. So you have people spending the same amount of money to go into a career that makes more money in some instances. My inclination would be that a lot of people choose to go rightfully so into the more lucrative jobs especially if they're going to basically pay the same amount to get their education their investments the same their return is bigger so the financial incentives are pretty easy to see there so what i'm saying is if those financial incentives naturally are not creating the job market that we want that's benefiting the whole of society if you have schools that are unable to find teachers or you have i don't know electrical companies that are having trouble finding certified electricians or whatever the case may be nurse shortages it would seem logical to me to try to incentivize people to go into those occupations by paying for a portion of their schooling and i think that that is a a sell that you could make to the taxpayers because the taxpayers need these people if the taxpayers all of a sudden go to a medical facility and there's not enough nurses there that's obviously a big problem or if there is not a certified teacher teaching their child or if you call a plumber and the plumber can't be there for three days because they're so backed up because there's not enough plumbers to service all the people who have plumbing needs 
These types of day-to-day -day things are obviously, that those would be negative for the overall of society. So if we can help alleviate that by incentivizing people to go into those, then I think that would be a good idea. And that wouldn't just be a good idea just for the whole of society and the fact that jobs would be filled and making sure that services are available to people, but also it would help alleviate the long-term student debt problem because people would have to borrow less to get educated because a portion of their education is already being paid for by the taxpayers. So instead of the taxpayers blanketly paying for it on the back end with student debt forgiveness, I think we should be funneling tax dollars in on the front end, but ensuring that the money that's going in is going to have a direct benefit to the taxpayers because we're making sure that enough people are being trained in occupations that provide necessary and important services to all of society. So I'm not saying that, you know, degrees for, let's say, sculpting or acting or something like that aren't important, but I think that those would probably find less support from taxpayers to help people go get a sculpting degree when the taxpayer probably isn't going to get a return on that investment, you know, compared to help paying for people to go become nurses and save lives or to help people to go to technical school to become welders and plumbers or electricians. And again, this would be something that would need to be studied to see where the actual job shortages are, because to me, that means the incentive structures that are naturally occurring are not providing the job market outcomes that we're looking for. I think that that would be a better way to go about attacking the long-term student debt problem. Rather than attacking student debt, you attack the cost of college and you make sure that taxpayers are getting a return on that investment by focusing on occupations that are considerably beneficial to the whole of society and that there are already shortages in, which would obviously have to be reevaluated over a certain time frame, whether it be every year, every five years, or whatever it is. So that's just one policy proposal that might lower the cost of college, thereby lowering the overall student debt problem because people are spending less on their education, therefore they need to borrow less. There are obviously other proposals that would need to be put forward to really attack the cost of college, which we will be doing a whole other episode on. It's definitely a big enough topic that it deserves its own episode. But in the meantime, we can be demanding that our elected officials start dealing with the rising cost of college because like I said, that is the real problem. We need to stop the bleeding, not just keep cleaning up the blood. We also need to be expanding the conversation away from the simplicity of just canceling student debt. As appealing as that sounds and as simple as it is, and it doesn't really require a whole lot of thought, I think that's going to be a hard sell to 87% of the country, and I think that that inherently presents a problem of actually passing something and getting something done. I think a lot more people would be willing to find ways to help alleviate this problem while still being fiscally responsible. But in order to do that, the older generations and also people who don't have student debt need to acknowledge that this is, in fact, not just a problem for people who have student debt. This is a problem for everyone. This is a collective problem because this has a ripple effect into the American job market, into the incentive structures of people going into certain career fields that we need people to be filling as a society. We also need to be educating borrowers on avenues that they can use to alleviate their burden right now, aside from just advocating for student debt cancellation, like income-based repayment plans that only 19% of Americans are utilizing while another 11% are either behind on their payments or delinquent. So obviously there needs to be an education incentive there as well. 
And another thing we can do is we can inform undergraduates on ways that they can cut costs during their college years to reduce the amount of money that they need to borrow. And that educational effort has to start all the way back in high school in the planning process of what they're going to do after high school with the financial well-being of that prospective student being of the utmost priority. So as we move forward and we try to navigate this issue and hopefully find some solutions, I think it's important that we escape from the current political narrative and start seeing this as a collective issue that requires a collective solution. And I also hope that Democrats in office start realizing that shifting the cost of loans from one group of people onto another group of people doesn't necessarily make them generous. And I hope also that the Republicans see that this is a huge issue that needs a solution and just calling people socialists when they try to help hardworking Americans with relief doesn't solve the problem either. And if you're a person with student loans, I do believe that you deserve relief, but I think we need to be cautious about the policy proposals we put forward and the unintended consequences that might come from blanket student loan forgiveness. And to the people who don't have student debt, who look at people who are asking for relief as some sort of freeloaders who are looking for handouts, these are not freeloaders asking for handouts. These are your nurses, your teachers, accountants, social workers, counselors, doctors, lawyers, and so much more. And if you value the continued services that they provide, then you need to be a part of the conversation on how to fix these problems. So I'll end with a quote, and I mean this figuratively, not literally. It's a quote from Benjamin Franklin where he says, we must all hang together, or most assuredly, we shall all hang separately. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. You can find full show notes from today's episode at changeourtalk.com. If you are liking the podcast, I would be honored if you would go ahead and hit that subscribe button and leave me a review. In the meantime, remember, democracy only thrives when ideas can flow. That flow is dependent on our communication. So if we want to change our society and country for the better, we must change the way we talk. I hope you tune in next time. Until then, take care.